Amen. All right, well, we're there in uh, Esther chapter number 7. And of course, on Sunday mornings, we've been going through the series entitled, For Such a Time as This. And we've been doing this verse-by-verse study through the book of Esther. And if you remember, uh, in chapter 6 and chapter 7, there is a theme in these chapters, which is the theme of God working on the other side. We've been watching God work on the other side. In chapter 6, we saw God work on the other side for Mordecai. In chapter 7, we're going to see God work on the other side for Esther. Now, uh, just to kind of set up the context and the story, of course, in this passage, in the first four verses, we uh, finally see Queen Esther plea for her life and the life of her people. And we've kind of been building up to this. If you remember, in chapter 5, she uh, stepped out by faith, went into the presence of the king, though she could be killed for it. And uh, he, he gave her the scepter, and he offered her uh, whatever she wanted. And we saw there in chapter 5 that she requested a banquet with the king. Then in chapter 6, we saw God work in regards to Mordecai and helping Mordecai. In chapter 7, we see Esther now at the second banquet on the second day. If you notice there in Esther chapter 7, verse 1, the Bible says this, so the king and Haman came to the banquet with Esther the queen. And the king said unto Esther, notice these words, on the second day at the banquet, And I want you to just make note of that. Uh, On the second day of the banquet of wine, what is thy petition, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? And it shall be performed even to half of the kingdom. Then Esther the queen answered and said, If I found favor in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, notice what she says. She says, Let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we are sold. I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. And this is, of course, what we've been seeing in the book of Esther, that Mordecai has manipulated the king, excuse me, Haman, has manipulated the king and has orchestrated this uh, day where the Jews are all going to be destroyed. Haman hates Mordecai, and as a result, he wants to not only kill Mordecai. He's built a gallows 50 feet high that he's put in his uh, front yard just to hang uh, Mordecai, but he also wants to just kill the people of Mordecai, all of the Jews. And Esther comes to the king, she says, for we are sold there in verse 4, I and my people to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. But if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, uh, I had held my tongue. And what she says, she says, look, if we, she's speaking to the king, she's saying, if we had simply just been sold as slaves, she said, I wouldn't even bring it up. But we have been uh, uh, sold for our lives. We're going to be killed. She says, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. And what she's saying there is, she's saying, if we had been sold for slaves, I wouldn't even bring this up. Although, if we had been sold into slavery, uh, the, the enemy could not countervail. That word means offset the effect of the king's damage. She's saying the, 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 the Jews, Mordecai and Esther and, and their people have been such a benefit to the king that even if he would have sold them for slavery, he would have uh, uh, brought great damage upon himself. It would have been a uh, bad thing for him. And in this chapter, what we're going to see in this chapter is uh, two very specific lessons, very similar to chapter 6, because in chapter 6, we saw God working on the other side for Mordecai. Here we see God working on the other side for Esther. We're going to see a lesson on patience, and we're going to see a lesson on pride. But I want to begin with this lesson on pride and to help you understand this idea and this lesson that we can learn regarding pride regarding Haman. Now, I want you to notice, and if you're taking notes, maybe you can jot these things down. The first thing we're going to look at is this lesson on pride. I want you to notice that Haman was a very haughty man. The word haughty is just a synonym for the word pride. It means to be proud or arrogant. Notice verse number five. The Bible says this, then the king Ahasuerus, because remember, they're having this banquet. It's the second banquet on the second day, and uh, Esther has invited both Haman and Ahasuerus the king. And 
Ahasuerus is asked, you know, what is your request? What can I do for you? Why are you inviting me? You know, what, what do you need? And she says, our people are sold. She says, we're going to be put to death. Here's a response from the king, verse 5. Then the king Ahasuerus answered and said unto Esther the queen, Who is he and where is he that durst presume in his heart to do so? Now, the king does not know that it's Haman. His, his second man, uh, second-hand man who's done this. So he's asking Esther, who is he and where is he that durst presume in his heart to do so? I, thought it, I think it's interesting that the king refers to the fact that whoever is doing this is being very presumptuous, that they, that they could get away with killing Mordecai and killing Esther. We saw in the last chapter last week that Haman was a very presumptuous man. Notice verse 6. And Esther said, The adversary and the enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen. And the king, arising from the banquet of wine, in his wrath, went into the place, uh, into the palace garden. And I'm not preaching on this this morning, but I want you to notice that uh, the king of Hazarius, you know, he does a lot of bad things in this uh, book, and he does a lot of good things in this book. And here we see one of the good things that he did when he got upset and when he got wrathful. The Bible says here in verse 7, the king arising from the banquet of wine in his wrath went into the palace garden. You know, that's some good advice for you. Whenever you're mad and angry and upset, you know, it's sometimes good to just kind of go be alone and cool down instead of, you know, just start saying all sorts of mean and angry and vicious things. Here the king, you know, realizes that, you know, I just found out something really upsetting. I just found out that, you know, my best friend, basically, my second man in command, you know, the the vice president or the secretary of state, Haman, has orchestrated and has moved and manipulated the king into creating laws that would result in the king's wife being put to death. And he's very upset about this. And he takes a good step here. He walks out. He goes to get some fresh air. The Bible says he went into the palace garden. And Haman stood up to make requests for his life to Esther the queen. For he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. And it's very interesting. It's very interesting how things have so quickly turned around for Haman. I mean, in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, Haman is the man. Haman is in charge. Hundreds of people are bowing before him as he's coming in and out of the kingdom. And in chapter 6, he's parading Mordecai around and honoring Mordecai. And here in chapter 7, he is pleading for his life. The Bible says there that he stood up to make requests for his life to Esther, verse 7, the queen. For he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. Notice verse 8. Then the king returned out of the palace garden in the place of the banquet of wine, and Haman was fallen upon the bed whereon Esther was. Then said the king, Will he force the queen also before me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And of course, we read the chapter. You know that Haman ends up being hung, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But before we talk about that, I want to just kind of explain to you and teach you that there is a lesson here in regards to pride that is taught all through the Bible, and it's highlighted here in regards to Haman. Keep your place here in Esther chapter 7. That's our text for this morning. Go with me, if you would, to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter number 16. You have Esther, Job, Psalms, and then the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 16. Do me a favor. When you get to the book of Proverbs, put a ribbon or a bookmark or something there because we're going to leave Proverbs and we're going to come back to it. Proverbs chapter 16. Haman was a very haughty man. He's a very arrogant man. I won't take the time to run through the entire book and highlight all of his pride, but if you read the book, it's very clear. He's very petty. He has so many people bowing before him, he does not even notice that Mordecai does not bow before him. But when somebody points it out to him and says, hey, have you noticed that Mordecai, that Jew, hasn't been bowing down to you? He just gets fixated on that. 
You know, everybody else is bowing. Everybody else is honoring him. And he's just fixated upon the fact that this one guy, look, be careful in your life. When everything's going well in life and you just have one area that's maybe not how you want it to be, be careful about just fixating on that one thing. And just, you know, I can't be content with anything else, you know, till more, you know, I know these hundreds of people are bowing to me, but Mordecai needs to bow. And I'm going to kill him if he doesn't. And I'm not just going to kill him. I'm going to kill his daughter and I'm going to kill his people. And of course, he's a very prideful man. Even we saw in the last chapter when he walks into the presence of the king and the king asks a question. He says, what do you think I should do for the man who I want to honor? And he assumes that the king is talking about him. He says, well, I think you should do this, and I think you should do that. This is a very prideful man. And we see that in his haughtiness and in his arrogance and in his pride, we get to chapter 7, and Haman is destroyed as a result of his pride. The Bible teaches this all throughout the Bible, and it is this concept that pride will destroy you. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 18 Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 18 says this. This is, this is just a principle of life. God has told us that this will happen. Pride goeth before destruction. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. God has ordained. There are certain uh, spiritual laws in the same way that we have physical laws like uh, you know, uh, gravity or, 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 or things that just happen in nature. There are some spiritual laws that God gives us in the Bible. One of them is the fact that you reap what you sow. Another one is found here in this chapter, uh, in Proverbs 16, verse 18, that it is this, pride goeth before destruction. Whenever somebody allows pride to enter into their mind and their heart and their life, just jot it down eventually that person will be destroyed because pride will destroy you. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Go to Proverbs chapter 11. Look at verse 2. Proverbs chapter number 11 and verse 2. Notice what the Bible says. Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 2. When pride cometh, then cometh shame. But with the lowly is wisdom. The Bible says, when pride cometh, then cometh shame. Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Go to Proverbs 29. Look at verse 23. Proverbs 29 and verse 23. Proverbs 29 and verse 23. Notice what the Bible says. The Bible says, a man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. Look, the Bible is very clear that pride will destroy you, whether you're saved, whether you're unsaved. There are certain laws, uh, just like we have the laws of nature, there are certain laws uh, uh, of God, spiritual laws, and they apply to both saved and unsaved people. Like I gave the example, you reap what you sow. That applies to both saved and unsaved people. The law of pride applies to both saved and unsaved people. The Bible says whenever you allow pride to enter into your life, look, get ready, jot it down, mark it down, you will be destroyed. You will be brought to shame. You will be brought low. This is this is a law of God that pride will destroy you. I mean, remember, and I won't take the time to look at it. In fact, you go with me to the book of James. Keep your place right there in Proverbs, if you would. Proverbs 16. Go to the book of James in the New Testament. Towards the end of the New Testament, you have the uh, uh, book of Revelation. If you go backwards, you have Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John, 2nd, and 1st Peter, James, James chapter 4. James chapter 4. If you remember, Satan. If you look at that passage in Isaiah regarding uh, Lucifer, and just filled with pride as he says that I will ascend. I will, you know, set my throne above the stars of God. He says, he says, I will be like the most high. And what does the Bible say? That God brought him down. Pride will always bring you down. Look, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't, you know, here's a very contemporary example. We recently had an election. 
where I think every single one of us, every single one of us, you know, was probably surprised at the outcome. Especially since, you know, it looks like the whole thing was stolen anyway. And, you know, it's funny because, go, you know, going to the election, I'm watching Joe Biden can barely, you know, connect a, a coherent sentence. And I'm thinking to myself, like, there's absolutely no way, there's absolutely no way this guy is going to win. You know, I'm watching the map, you know, light up and it's all red. And then just, you know, most people went to bed thinking, okay, Donald Trump is president, no surprise there, whatever. You wake up and Joe Biden's president. And you say, how in the world did that happen? Let me tell you something. There is a spiritual law. There is a spiritual law that says that pride goeth before destruction. There's a spiritual law that says when pride cometh, then cometh shame. There's a spiritual law that says a man's pride shall bring him low. And I don't know about you, but I don't know that I've ever met. I've ever, I've never met him, but I've never known of a man more prideful than President Donald Trump. And I thought to myself, you know, when I realized, okay, this is real. He's not going to be the president. You know what I thought? I thought a man's pride shall bring him low. It doesn't matter how how many followers you have. It doesn't matter how many people you have supporting you. It doesn't matter how many voters come out for you. God says and God promises that when pride comes into your life, he's going to bring you down. He's going to put you low. There's going to be shame there. Because pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. What is pride? Pride is an inflated view of self. Pride is a puffed up view of self. Pride is thinking of yourself more than you ought to think. Pride is giving yourself credit for all of your success, giving yourself credit for all of your uh, 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 riches and wealth and health, giving yourself credit, thinking, man, I must be something special. I must be something big. Pride is thinking too much of yourself. And God promises, God promises that pride goeth before destruction. Because pride will destroy you. And see, we see, we see Haman and you think, no one can touch Haman. No, nothing can happen to Haman. Haman, I mean, he, he's promoted above the princes. He has all this power. He has all this wealth. No, nobody can mess with him. Everybody must bow to him. But yet so quickly, he's destroyed. Now look, just mark it down. Mark it down. Pride will destroy you. So be careful. When you start having success, when business is going well and the bank is full and, and, and things are happening and, and, you know, whatever area of life, whatever you call success in, in your arena of life, be careful when you start having success to start thinking a little too much or too highly of yourself because there's no better way to self-destruct than to allow pride in your life. Pride goes before destruction. And a haughty spirit before a fall. This is what Haman learned. When pride cometh, then cometh shame. A man's pride shall bring him low. Go to James chapter 4. Not only will pride destroy you, but pride will also set God against you. James chapter 4, look at verse 6. James chapter 4 and verse 6, the Bible says this, But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud. I mean, notice those words. Do you want those words to be said of you, God resisteth, remove your name and remove the words, the proud, and put your name there? I mean, I don't know about you, but that's not what I want. I don't want that to be my life first. God resisteth brother so-and-so. God resisteth sister so-and-so. The Bible says that God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. You say, why is that? Why is it that God says, um, he put this spiritual law that whenever pride comes, it will be followed by destruction. Whenever pride cometh, uh, then cometh shame. When pride shall bring a man low. Why is it that God resists the, pro- the proud? Here's why. Because pride, pride is a forgetting of, is a failure to acknowledge God. Because the truth is this, everything you have was given to you by God. 
You say, oh, no, well, I, I work hard. That's why I'm as successful as I am. You work hard because God allows you to work hard. You work hard because God allowed you to get up in the morning. You work hard because God allowed you the strength to work uh, uh, hard. Or you, you're smart because God gave you a brain that is intelligent. Whatever, you, you, whatever talent you have, whatever ability you have, whatever success you have, it all came from God. And the minute we start thinking, oh, no, it's all me, God says, I resist the proud. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Here's a takeaway for you. We must never allow ourselves to develop an inflated, puffed-up view of self. We must always maintain a proper and humble view of self, and that view is this, that everything I have, look, everything I have, every success I have, everything I've done that, 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 that could be called a success or a victory, to God be the glory. It's because God has allowed us. It's because God has helped us. Like they said in 1 Samuel, when they had that great success, they put up the marker of Ebenezer. Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. And in your life and in my life, in this church's life, in this ministry, in your personal life and in your business, every success of life, we should always hold up this banner of Ebenezer hitherto. When somebody asks, you know, how did you do it? How did you make it? How did you accomplish it? Our response must always be, hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Because everything we have came from God. So we see this lesson on pride, that pride will destroy you. And that pride will cause God to come against you. God resisted the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Not only do we see Go back to Esther chapter 7, if you would. Keep your place in Proverbs. We're going to go right back to it. Not only do we see that Haman was a haughty man, but we see that Haman was a heinous man. The word heinous means hateful, shockingly evil, or hurtful. And see, these two things go hand in hand. To be haughty and to be heinous. To be prideful and to be hateful. Because the problem, see, one of the problems with pride, one of the problems with pride, and one of the reasons that I try to fight pride so much, allowing pride to enter into our church and allowing pride and allowing prideful people to minister in our church, one of the problems is that as soon as you allow, as soon as you begin to develop an overinflated, overly puffed up view of self, it doesn't just end there. I mean, if that was it, that, that'd be bad enough. I mean, if that was it, if all it produced was an arrogant view of self, that would be annoying, but maybe we could put up with it. The problem is that it doesn't always end there at being haughty. It often takes this next step at being heinous. See, when we begin to have this puffed-up view of self, we also begin to have a very low view of others. We not only start thinking we're the greatest thing on earth, but we start thinking everybody else, you know, is just, just stinks. They're not worth it. They're not worth anything. They're not needed. See, one of the problems with pride is that it rarely ends there at pride. First, it is an overinflated, puffed-up view of self, and then it is a lower and disdainful view of others. This is what we see with Haman. It's one thing if he's just Mr. Arrogant. But it's not, that's not enough. He's Mr. Arrogant, I'm so great, and let me kill God's people because they're so terrible. See, pride and haughtiness often leads to someone being heinous, hurtful, trying to hurt people, trying to manipulate situations in order to hurt individuals. You know, we, we have a documentary we made called Psychopath Reprobates, and I believe that psychopath reprobates, you know, psychopaths are reprobates. But, you know, there's another layer there of, 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 of people, and this is psychological terms, if you'd excuse me for a minute, you know, called sociopaths. And I think sociopaths are different than psychopaths. I don't necessarily think they're reprobates, but I think that they are people who have just allowed pride to, to su- take such control over their life, they begin to manipulate situations. I mean, you probably work with someone like this. 
You might have gone to school with somebody like this. I mean, you meet these people, and it's like their, their pastime, their hobby is to like orchestrate situations to turn people against the person they don't like. I mean, they'll spread rumors, they'll spread lies, they'll subtly implant things into people's minds to try to manipulate situations, to try to get people to turn on their enemy, the person they've chosen to not like. You've got these sociopaths who want to, you know, turn all their resources and ability, you know, to try to get everybody to just be against this one person, against this one individual, this individual that they don't like. That's Haman. I mean, Haman was a psychopath, but you could even see non-psychopaths do this. He manipulates the king. He, he orchestrates this big, I mean, this is big, we're going to see it in the next few chapters. It's a big deal, this big ordeal where the Jews are all going to be put to death. Why? Because he's petty. I mean, he builds a gallows 50 feet in the air and he puts it on his front yard. I mean, how petty and how heinous and how hateful do you have to be? It's not just enough to say, I want to kill Haman. No, I want to kill Haman and I want everybody to see it. And I want it done on my front yard. And I want, every, I want to send a message to everybody out there. This is what happens when you don't bow to me. And this is Haman. This is someone who's heinous. Notice verse 9, Esther chapter 7, verse 9. And Harbona, one of the chamberlains. Now, who's Harbona? We don't really know who Harbona is, but here's what Harbona teaches us, is that nobody liked Haman. I mean, nobody said anything against Haman because he's the king's best friend and he's got all his power. But as soon as those things turn, you know, it's funny. As soon as the tables turn, how many people come out and say, well, let me tell you what I, you know, let me tell you about Haman. Let me tell you what Haman did. And Harbona, one of the chamberlains, said before the king, behold also, king, let me tell you something else you don't know about Haman. The gallows 50 cubits high, which Haman uh, had made for Mordecai. Remember Mordecai, king? Mordecai, who saved your life? Mordecai, who you honored in the last chapter? I don't know if you know this, king, but he actually, Haman, built gallows 50 cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who had spoken good for the king, standing in the house of Haman. Then the king said, hang him thereon. In this chapter, we see Haman play, he plays hangman. And he builds these gallows to, 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 uh, to hang Mordecai on. And the, last, and the Bible says there in verse 9, the last part of verse 9, then the king said, hang him there on. Look at verse 10. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. See, we not only see a spiritual law regarding pride, but we also see a spiritual law regarding being spiteful or evil. There's a spiritual law for those who are haughty, and there's a spiritual law for those who are heinous. Go to Proverbs 26 if you would. Let me share it with you. Proverbs 26. The spiritual law for those which are haughty is this, pride goeth before destruction. Pride will bring a man low. When pride cometh, then cometh shame. It, look, if things are going well and you've got some momentum going, stay, stay humble. Stay, make sure you don't allow this overinflated view of self. Look how great I am. Look how amazing I am. Look at me. Because that's going to be the one thing that God's going to begin to resist you and bring you down. A spiritual law regarding haughtiness. But then there's a spiritual law regarding being heinous. You say, what is it? Well, look at Proverbs 26, verse 27. Whoso diggeth a pit. Proverbs 26, verse 27. Notice this. Whoso diggeth a pit. And the understanding here is that someone is digging a pit so that they can make somebody else fall in it. Here's what God says. Whoso diggeth a pit shall fall therein. Don't miss that. If you go and you dig a pit, I'm going to make so-and-so fall in this pit. God says, whoso diggeth a pit shall fall therein. 
and he that rolleth a stone. He said, you know, you start rolling a stone, you say, I'm going to roll this stone upon so-and-so. Be careful, because he that rolleth a stone, it will return upon him. For, for Haman, here's what it looked like. Whoso buildeth gallows will get hanged thereon. Here's, here's how Jesus said it. They that live by the sword must die by the sword. See, the Bible teaches this. The Bible teaches that when you set out to hurt people, when you set out to plot and plan, when you think you're going to be mischievous and you're going to be conniving and I'm going to dig, I'm going to, I got this plan, I'm going to dig this hole and I'm going to get Mordecai to fall in it. Whoso diggeth the pit shall fall therein. And he that rolleth the stone, it will return upon, return upon him. I mean, this is, this is throughout the Bible. Go to Ecclesiastes chapter 10 if you would. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. You're there in Proverbs, just one book over, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Look at verse 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 8, very similar to Proverbs. He that diggeth the pit shall fall into it. And whoso breaketh the hedge, breaketh the hedge is like breaking a, a fence or a, 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 a border, a boundary. They're doing this in a negative way, mischievous way. Whoso breaketh the hedge, a serpent shall bite him. You say, what does this mean? Here's what it means. Go, go to Psalm if you would, Psalm chapter 7, Psalm 7. If you go backwards, you got Proverbs. From Ecclesiastes, you have Proverbs in the book of Psalms. Psalm 7. You say, what does this mean? Here's what it means. Don't plot to hurt people. Don't plot to hurt people. Or your plans may come back upon you. Here's a lesson. Here's a lesson from Haman. Sociopath. <laughs> Don't start getting so overly filled with pride. Look at me. Look at everything I do. Look how amazing I am. Look how awesome I am. I must be so great. And allow that to lead you to start looking down on people and say, well, they're not worth anything and they don't do anything and they don't work as hard as I do and they don't give as much as I do and they don't do as much as I do. And then you decide, well, if they're not worth anything, let me start manipulating. Let me start plotting. Let me start hurting. Look, look, just listen to me. Before you decide that, you know, I want that promotion, and in order to get that promotion, I'm going to spread all these lies about so-and-so because they're really my only competition. Just, just remember, whoso diggeth the pit shall fall therein. And he that rolleth the stone, it will return upon him. Look, as Christians, we ought to live in light. We ought to do righteously. If we want to succeed in life, we should do it in the light. We should accomplish things. Look, we should want to be promoted based on our own merit. If you have to tear someone down in order for you to go up, then don't do it. Amen. It'll backfire on you because he that diggeth a pit shall fall into it. So if you find yourself having to whisper, if you find yourself having to uh, 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 hold secrets, if you find yourself having to be conniving and manipulative and, well, I've got the, I'm going to make them think I'm doing this, but I actually have this secret agenda. If you find yourself living like that, don't be surprised when they hang you on the gallows you built. I mean, Psalm 7, look at verse 15. Psalm 7, 15 could be Haman's life verse. Psalm 7, 15. He made a pit and digged it and has fallen into the ditch which he made. He made a pit and digged it, Haman. He built gallows and set them up and is fallen into the ditch which he made, and is hung upon the gallows which he built. Here's the takeaway. Don't look down on others in pride. Don't plot to hurt others connivingly, because your plans will come back on you. They'll backfire on you. See, the lessons we learn from Esther chapter number 7 is we see this lesson on Pride, this lesson on haughtiness, what is it? That pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. That pride will bring a man low. That when pride cometh, then cometh shame. And then we see this lesson on being heinous. When you decide, I'm going to attack somebody, I'm going to hurt somebody, I'm going to plan against somebody. Look, if you got to fight somebody, at least come out in the light. At least look him in the eye and say, hey, i got a problem with you. 
Why did you do this? And why? But you say, oh, no, I'm just going to manipulate the situation. I'm just going to spread rumors about them. I'm just going to work things out to try to, I'm just going to dig a ditch. You're going to fall in it. I'm just going to build gallows. You're going to get hung on them. Don't plot to hurt people. Your plans will come back upon you. Go back to Esther chapter 5, if you would. Esther chapter 5. We're in Esther chapter 7, but I want you to go to Esther chapter 5. I said there's two major lessons in this chapter. The first lesson is on pride. We've seen that. I'd like to shift gears for a minute and look at the second lesson. It is, it is a lesson on patience. We saw the lesson from Haman. He was a haughty man and he was a heinous man. He was destroyed as a result of his pride and he fell into the pit which he dug for other people. Here's a lesson on patience. We learned this regarding Esther. Now, if you remember, the way that this story started was that Esther set up a banquet for the king and Haman. Esther chapter 5, look at verse 4. And Esther answered, If it seem good unto the king, let the king and Haman come this day. Notice the words, this day, what day? That first day. Because remember, Esther goes to the king. She goes, he gives out his scepter. He says, what is your request? What is your petition? And she says, let the king and Haman come this day unto the banquet. What banquet? The first banquet that I prepared for him. Look at verse 5. Then the king said, cause Haman to make haste, that he may do as Esther had said. So the king and Haman came to the banquet that Esther had prepared. And the king said unto Esther at the banquet of wine, at which banquet of wine? The first banquet of wine. What is thy petition? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? Even to have for the kingdom, it shall be performed. Here you have a house saying, look, what, Esther, what do you need? I mean, you, you, you put your own life in jeopardy to come speak to me when I had not called you, when that's a law against our land. Obviously, you need something Obviously, there's a reason why you came. You may be in trouble. What do you need? Look at verse 7. Then answered Esther and said, My petition and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my petition and to perform my request. I don't know about you, but when I read that, it sounds to me like Esther's stalling a little bit. I mean, the king's saying, hey, what do you need? To the half of the kingdom. You think she'd just come out and say, Haman's trying to kill me. You know, you're my husband. Defend me. Protect me. But it, it, it almost seems like Esther's just kind of, you, you can see the wheels kind of turning in her, in her head. And the king's asking, what do you need? Even to the half of the kingdom, it shall be performed. And she's, she's speaking methodically, slowly, almost trying to decide. You ever have to talk to somebody while you're trying to decide what you're going to say as you're saying it? She says, my petition and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my petition, get on with it, Esther. What do you need? And to perform my request, she says this, let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I have prepared for them, and I will do tomorrow as the king has said. Esther decided, Esther decided the timing was wrong. She needed more time. She decided to wait. I mean, the, the king's like, what do you need, Esther? What do you want, Esther? Unto the half of the kingdom it shall be performed unto thee. And she's trying to decipher this thing and she's maybe praying in her heart as she's even talking through it. She's saying, well, if, if I found favor on the side of the king and if, if the king wants to perform my... And she's thinking through this thing and then she gets to the end and she says, come back tomorrow. And she waits. Now, we don't know why she waits. The Bible doesn't tell us why she chose to wait. But what we know is this, that she waited and I will say this, sometimes in life we must wait on God. Amen. Sometimes in life, sometimes in life we need things and we want things and we ask for things. 
And what we need to do is be more like Esther. What made Esther decide to wait? I don't know. I mean, maybe she was just scared. Maybe there was just something about the situation. Maybe the Holy Spirit of God was just pressing upon her. It's not right. The timing's not right. Maybe she's looking at Hazaris and she's looking at Haman with a little smirk on his face and she's thinking it's just not the right time. It's just not right yet. And she decided to wait. Look, sometimes we need in life to wait on God. You will find yourself, go to the book of Acts if you would, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Acts chapter number 7, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. In life, you will find situations where you could push forward if you wanted to, but we must learn in life, we must learn to be sensitive to the calling of God and the Spirit of God, and sometimes we have to be smart enough to realize that maybe we just need to wait. Sometimes we need to wait on God. You say, why? Why do I need to wait? Doesn't that sound like what a teenager would say? Why do I need to wait? Well, here's why. Because every time we don't wait, we mess things up. Every time we don't wait on God, every time we push forward without God, every time we push our agenda, we push our timing instead of God's timing, mark it down, you'll mess it up. Now, there's a lot of examples I can give you about this. I can preach a whole sermon on this subject. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to give you one example, Acts chapter 7. And it is the example of Moses. Acts chapter 7 and verse 22. Of course, Acts chapter 7, we have Stephen preaching this great sermon. And he's going through the history of the children of Israel. It is the Holy Spirit giving us a commentary on the Old Testament. When the Bible is its own commentary, you can't get a better commentary than that. And here we have Stephen, and he's going into the story of Moses. I want you to notice what he says in verse 22. And Moses was learned in all wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in word and in deed. And when he, Moses, was full 40 years old, you know the story of Moses. The children of Israel are in captivity. Pharaoh has put a death sentence upon every man-child that is born. Moses' mother, Jochebed, puts him in a little canister and sends him down the river. He's going to die anyway. And she thinks, well, maybe God will work on the other side. And God did. And Pharaoh's daughter takes Moses from the water, names him Moses because she drew him from the water. She raised him as her own. And the Bible tells us here in verse 23, and when he was full 40 years old, Moses now a 40-year-old man, it came into his heart Look, this was not a bad thing. This was a good thing. It came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. Moses is 40 years old. He decides to go visit his brethren. He knows that he's a Jew. He knows he's, a, he's a, excuse me, of the nation of Israel. He knows that he's a Hebrew. And he goes out there to see his brethren. And while he's out there, he sees an Egyptian beating down one of his brethren. And the Bible says he defended him and smote the Egyptian. Look at verse 25. And he, Moses, supposed, there's your assumptions again, Remember, we talked about assumptions last week. And he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them. But they understood not. Moses is looking at his life and he's thinking to himself, huh, I wonder, I wonder if I was brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. I I wonder... If there has been a series of unfortunate events in my life that has brought me to this place, Moses thinks, I wonder, I mean, I'm here in the palace, I'm 40 years old, I'm strong in word and in might, I've got authority and power, and I'm a Hebrew, and my people are enslaved, and maybe, just maybe, God has put me here to deliver my people. For he supposed his brethren would have understood that God, by his hand, would deliver them but they understood not. He says, I mean, God has to be at work here, right? I mean, I'm a Hebrew, and I am a son of the princess of Pharaoh. Maybe God put me here to deliver my people. It was a good thought. But as we'll see, it was the wrong timing. 
Look at verse 26. And the next day he, Moses, showed himself unto them as they strove. So now you got two Hebrews fighting, and he comes out to them, and he's thinking, well, of course, I'm the hero. I just saved one of these guys yesterday. And would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, ye are brethren, why do ye wrong one to another? Why do ye wrong one to another? Verse 27. And he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Why don't you remember those words? Here we have Moses, 40 years old, trying to save his people, trying to help his people. Good thought, wrong timing. They thrust him away, and they said, Who do you think you are? Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Look at verse 28. Wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? Then fled Moses at this saying, and was a stranger in the land of Midian. In Exodus, we're told he was a stranger in a strange land where he begat two sons. Look at verse 30. Don't miss this. And when 40 years were expired, 40 years later, we have Moses' timing and we have God's timing. Moses is 40 years old and he says, well, God obviously put me here to save my people. That's Moses' timing. We're about to see God's timing. And when 40 years were expired, 40 years later, Moses is now a 40-year-old man, uh, an 80-year-old man. There appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. We won't take the time to look at all the verses. So skip down to verse 34 for sake of time. Notice what the angel of the Lord says to Moses. I have seen. I have seen the affliction of my people, which is in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning and am come down to deliver them. <laughs> look at these words. And now. You see that word now there? That's timing. Not 40 years ago, Moses. That was your timing. And now, 40 years later, and now, come, I will send thee into Egypt. And Stephen says, Stephen, as he's preaching his sermon, says this in verse 35. He says, this Moses, whom they refused. When did they refuse him? 40 years earlier. 40 years earlier, they thrust him away and said, who made thee a judge and a ruler over us? Then Stephen says, this Moses, whom they refused, 40 years earlier, saying, who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. What was the difference? It was on God's time. See, Moses had the right thought, just the wrong timing. Moses would have done well to take a lesson from Esther and to say, maybe I was brought to the kingdom for such a time as this, but maybe I shouldn't push it. Maybe I should wait on God. See, God did put Moses there. God did orchestrate all this for Moses. In his timing, Moses wanted to do it when he was 40 years old. God said, you'll do it when you're 80 years old. I need you to spend 40 years on the backside of the wilderness. <laughs> See, you and I would say, you and I would say, well, that's such a waste of time. See, let me give you a lesson on, on, on timing. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? What do you do when God puts you in a pause in life? When God says, no, I want to do this. And God says, no, I want to go there. And God says, no. What do you do when God puts you in a pause, when God puts you in a freeze? What do you do when there's nothing for you to do? But wait. You know what you do? You learn. See, we, Moses, Moses and I would look at God and say, God, really? 40 years on the backside of the wilderness? Why do you need Moses to be, spend 40 years on the backside of the wilderness. Why do you need Moses to spend 40 years? He's 40 years old. I mean, you're going to, the prime of his life, from 40 to 80 years old, you're going to have him waste his time just running in circles in the wilderness. God, why? Little did we know that God knew that Moses would lead the children of Israel for 40 years in the backside of the wilderness, which he knew like the backside of his hand because he'd already spent 40 years there. 
So what do you do when there's nothing for you to do? You wait and you learn. You realize that if God has you on hold, God has you on hold for a reason. You realize that if God is asking you to wait, then God is asking you to wait for a purpose. And you don't push forward and push in and decide, well, I'm just going to do this myself anyway. Whenever, whenever we decide to go forward without God, look, sometimes we need to wait on God. But I can say this, every time we don't wait on God, we mess things up. So what do you do when there's nothing for you to do? You wait. You learn. Go to Esther chapter number 6 if you would. Let me just talk to some of you singles. You're all panicked and panicking. I'm getting so old and I haven't yet met my, you know, Prince Charming and my Prince in Shining Armor. I'm getting so old and I've not yet met, you know, that girl. I'm getting so old. I mean, I'm, I'm 23 years old. I'm getting so old. Let me tell you something. Instead, about, instead of worrying about when you're going to meet Mr. or Mrs. Wright, why don't you worry about becoming the right type of person so that when you meet Mr. Wright, you're ready for him? So when you meet Mrs. Wright, you're ready for her. Look, teenagers, we're, nobody's trying to hold you back, and you're in this awkward stage where you're not really a kid, and you're not really an adult, and you're just kind of this freak of nature. And you just want to grow up and be big and, and God and mom and dad and pastor keep holding you back. Maybe there's a reason why they're asking you to wait. Amen. Maybe you should quit trying to push forward and messing everything up in life and just realize that if they're asking me to wait, if God is asking me to wait, then when there's nothing else to do but wait, maybe I should wait and learn Amen. and prepare and be ready. Because sometimes in life, God asks us to wait. And every time, every time that we don't wait on God, we mess things up. But oftentimes, while we get, wait on God, God is at work on the other side. Well, I met this girl, and yeah, I mean, she's not even saved. And, you know, but I'm going to get her saved, you know, right after the honeymoon. And, and uh, she's worldly, and she hates God, but it's going to all work out because I don't want to wait. Hey, why don't you wait? Why don't you wait and realize that maybe God is having you wait because he's working on your spouse that you've not yet met on the other side? Oftentimes, while we wait on God, oftentimes, while we wait on God, God is at work. On the other side. See, in Esther chapter 5, in Esther chapter 5, Esther was moved. We don't know why. The Bible doesn't tell us, but she was moved of the Spirit. We assume, I assume, the time is not right. I'm watching Haman with that little smirk on his face, and it's just not right. King says, what do you want? She says, I want to make a second banquet for you tomorrow. And tomorrow, I'll tell you what I need. Esther chapter 6, look at verse 1. On that night, what night? The night after the first banquet? The night right before the second banquet? The night in which Esther decided to wait on God? On that night, could not the king sleep? And he commanded to bring the book of records of the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. We saw this last week. You're familiar with it. And it was found written that Mordecai had told Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door, who sought to lay hands on the king of Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor and dignity have been done to Mordecai for this? Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, There is nothing done for him. See, between the two banquets, during that time in which Esther said, I'm not going to push forward. I'm not going to be impatient. I'm just going to wait on God. The timing's not right. I'm just going to wait. What happened between those two banquets? The king was reminded that Mordecai saved his life and that nothing had been done for him. What happened between those two banquets? Skip down to verse 10. 
Then the king said to Haman, Make haste and take the apparel and the horse, as thou hast said, and do even so to Mordecai the Jew that sitteth at the king's gate. Let nothing fail of all that thou hast spoken. If you remember in verse 4, Mordecai, uh, Haman came in to speak unto the king to hang Mordecai. On that night and on that morning, Haman shows up and he says, I'm going to get permission from the king to hang Mordecai. And Haman shows up and the king says, what should I do for the man that I want to honor? And Haman assumes that he's speaking about himself. And he says, well, here's what I think you should do. Give him your clothes and give him your horse and give him your crop and parade him around town and have somebody walk before him and say, this is what happens to the man who the king wishes to honor. And then the king looks at Haman and says, good, make haste and do even so to Mordecai the Jew. In that night, Haman is forced by the king to parade Mordecai as a hero. Look at verse 11. Then took Haman the apparel of the horse and arrayed Mordecai and brought him on horseback through the streets of the city and proclaimed before him. Probably sounded something like this. Thus shall it be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor. That's what happened that night. While Esther waited, while Esther was patient, God was at work on the other side. What happened that night? That night, Haman's fortunes turned. That night, Haman's friends turned on him. Look at verse 12. And Mordecai came again to the king's gate, but Haman hasted to his house. Notice, mourning and having his head covered. This is, this is the way that you would dress. This is the way that you would act if you were mourning somebody's death. Mordecai is mourning his own death. He, he just came from his own funeral. Haman hasted to his house mourning and having his head covered. And Haman told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends, everything that had befallen him. Then said the wise man, and Zeresh, his wife, unto him, If Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews, before whom thou hast begun to fall, thou shalt not prevail against him, but shall surely fall before him. See, before that night, Haman, the, the Jews were falling before Haman. During that night, Haman began to fall before the Jews. Look at verse 14. And while they, while who? Haman's wife and Haman's friends. Because remember, Haman shows up, mourning and having his head covered, tells his friends and his wife everything that happened. They kick him all his down and says, well, you know, I hope you put me on the life insurance because you're probably going to die. <laughs> Verse 14, and while they were yet talking with him, came the king's chamberlains and hasted to bring Haman unto the banquet that Esther had prepared. While he's in mourning, while he has his head covered, while he's in, uh, in that state, talking to his friends, the chamberlain shows up and says, hey, it's time for you to go to dinner with Esther. You, you didn't forget about dinner, did you? You look kind of bad. I mean, think about this. Haman shows up with King Ahasuerus, the first banquet, like this. <laughs> with a smirk on his face. He shows up to the second banquet like this. And mourning with his head covered. You know what Esther thinks? The time is right. Amen. Look at verse 1. Esther chapter 7. So the king and Haman came to banquet with Esther the queen. And the king said again unto Esther, On the second day at the banquet of wine, on the second day, after Esther chose to wait, what is thy petition, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? And it shall be performed even to half of the kingdom. And she asks for Haman to be put to death. And he does. Here's the takeaway. If God is making you wait, it's for a reason. If God is making you wait, it's for a reason. He may just be working on the other side. And Esther, you can push it. You can push it at the wrong timing like Moses did. You can push it, and it'll all fall apart. Or you can wait on God. Because God will make all things beautiful in his time. Mordecai could not have orchestrated this. Esther could not have orchestrated this. No one could have orchestrated this but God. Psalm 40 and verse 1, you don't have to turn there. The Bible says this, I waited patiently for the Lord. 
and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. Isaiah 40, 31 says this, But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Look, sometimes we find ourselves in states of life where we think, why does God want me to wait? And it may just be that God is at work on the other side. So while you wait, teenager, while you wait, single person, while you wait in that career and it's right after 2020 and coronavirus happened and you were getting ready to do this and do that, you're getting ready to start this business, you're getting ready to go there and now things have kind of messed up and now you just kind of feel like God just has you in wait. While you wait, just wait and learn because God might be orchestrating something for you that you could not orchestrate for yourself. We see this lesson on pride. We see the spiritual nature of haughtiness, that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We see this lesson on being heinous, to not plot to hurt people because your plans will come back upon you. Don't decide you're going to roll a stone on someone because that stone might roll back on you. And we learn this this lesson on patience, that sometimes we need to wait on God. And every time we don't wait on God, we mess things up. And oftentimes, while we wait on God, God, the unseen hand of God, is silently at work on the other side. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this Bible. Thank you for these stories you've taught us, these examples and examples that you've given us. Lord, I know it's very difficult to wait sometimes. But help us to learn to wait upon the Lord. Help us to realize that sometimes the thought is right, but the timing's wrong. And we just need to wait. We love you. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.